Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Michael Dickinson, who is Professor of Bioengineering and Aeronautics at the California Institute of Technology. One of his research focus areas is the flight of insects. Welcome, Michael. Um, it's, uh, it's a pleasure to uh, talk to you. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So I want to uh, use one of your older papers to set the context, uh, Death Valley, Drosophila, and the Devonian Toolkit. Uh, you say most experiments on the flight behavior of Drosophila have been performed within confined laboratory chambers, yet the natural history of these animals involves dispersal that takes place on a much larger spatial scale. And you have done a lot of experiments around this uh, going back a few uh, few decades, I think, right? Um, you want to talk about one of the sort of the early experiments in this area? Sure. Well, I mean, it, it, it'd be easy to actually talk about two bookends on yeah. that problem. Um, the first bookend is what we were doing, you know, beginning 30 years ago, which was to study the flight capacity of these little insects um, by creating, for the time, what were pretty sophisticated uh, flight simulators. So, um, this is a device where you take a fly, you um, carefully uh, uh, tether it, you glue it to a, to a fine pin, and you place it within an apparatus where you can measure the motion of its wings and the um, forces and, uh, and turning moments, the torques that it's generating. And you can basically let it play a little video game. So um, you can create patterns of a visual flow, which would be similar to those that the fly perceives when it's flying through the world. Yeah. Um, and you can also outfit the instrument with um, devices for measuring the energy that the animal is consuming. And in using these experiments, we were, we really wanted to try to study the, you know, the long distance flight behavior of, of the animal 
um, but doing so in a laboratory where we could make you know very specific measurements. Let me pause and jump forward to you know the most recent paper that will soon appear from the laboratory, where instead of doing these sorts of experiments inside a lab with a lot of you know fancy instrumentation, we actually went to the field. We went to the Mojave Desert, and we would release at a given experiment, um, you know, up to 200,000 flies. And we would use camera systems to detect when they arrived at given positions within the desert. Yeah. And so we could verify in a, you know, real natural environment that these animals were capable of, you know, flying, you know, um, for you know well 12 to 15 kilometers um without without feeding in between um and this is an animal which is about two and a half millimeters in body length <laughs> yeah so that's an extraordinary dispersal capability for these you know little tiny creatures and it confirmed all of the measurements that we had made years before in the laboratory yeah, so the, the mechanics of flight um, in these flies, uh, it's pretty complex, right? There's, there's just the fluid mechanics of this. Um, could you talk a bit about uh, how exactly do they fly? Yeah, well, it is, it is a bit complicated. So it's, it, it doesn't, um, it, it, it doesn't uh, easily translate into the, the quickest explanation, but, but basically, um, the, the wings of insects operate um, somewhat like the propellers of helicopters. Yeah. Um, they, they, they rotate around their, their base, but instead of a helicopter rotor, which you know, continues to travel in the same direction you know, at high speed forever, um, an insect has to flap its wing for about uh, 180 degrees and then flip the wing over and flap it back. Um, and it can, you know, basically repeats this sort of, you know, flip, move, flip, move, flip, move, or flip, rotate, flip, rotate, flip, rotate. It, it repeats that, you know, hundreds of times a, a second. Well, yeah. And the, the other thing that it's able to do, um, which is you know, very unique compared to aircraft that humans build, is that it, um, it sweeps its wing through the air during each one of these repetitions at a very, very high angle of attack. That means that it, that it, that it meets the oncoming air at a very steep angle. And as a consequence, it creates a, a somewhat exotic flow structure called um, a leading edge vortex, which you sort of have to visualize as like a little, kind of like a little tornado, but oriented horizontally along the the edge of the wing, as opposed to you know vertically, um, as yeah. tornadoes are on the ground. And it's the large amount of circulation that that vortex creates that's responsible for the elevated forces that insects are capable of generating with their wings. Wow, yeah, so, so it's almost like the vortex pulling it in, in the direction of flight? 
Yeah, well, you can think about the vortex as representing a, a, a place where the, the air pressure is very low. So um, the wing is effectively sucked upward, upwards and backwards as it's moving, as, as, as the insect is, is sweeping it through the, through the air. Um, um, and then you, when it changes direction, it again is creating you know, both lift and, and, and drag, but averaged over an entire wing stroke, the predominant force is upwards and, and, and so that's how the animal is able to, to stably hover in place. And now if it tilts its body a little bit forward, then that upward force now has a, has a, has a forward component and the animal can start to, to, to cruise around. Um, and for fruit flies, you know, that means, you know, going at about, um, oh, about, uh, a, a, a meter per second or so. Um, um, so it takes a, takes a fruit fly about 10 minutes to, to go a full kilometer. Right, yeah, still, still really fast. Uh, and so hundreds of seconds, hundreds of times per second, uh, the, the wings flapping back and forth. Uh, this is obviously quite programmatic, quite instinctual uh, to the animal. The, the brain is uh, just doing it instinctually, I would imagine, right? Yeah, the flies don't have to learn how to fly. Um, they're flies like most insects are what, you know, we call uh, holometabolous, which means they have a larval form. Um, in, the, in the case of a butterfly, you know, we have this, you know, very friendly term caterpillar. In the case of a fly, um, unfortunately, we have a less friendly term uh, maggot. But um, the maggot and caterpillar are really similar life history stages. They're worm-like creatures yeah. uh, that are responsible for the, the growth phase of the animal. So the animal goes just like a caterpillar. Um, a fly goes from a very, very, very tiny egg and um, living mostly on yeast and bacteria that grow on rotting things um, like fruit. Yeah. Um, the maggots grow to the, you know, roughly the size of the adult and then they undergo metamorphosis. And so when they come out of their pupae, which is the little case where the metamorphosis takes place, um, you know, that's the first time they have you know, wings and legs and look like a fly. And those animals are able to fly you know, the first time they take off. So they don't really have the, um, uh, the luxury of being able to learn and practice flying like like birds do, yeah. um, so it's it's a somewhat miraculous process, really. I mean, I think neuroscientists tend to, and maybe the public as well, tends to think that that learning is the you know most sophisticated thing that nervous systems do. I don't think this is, in my opinion, this is not really correct. Um, because, I mean, imagine if you took a baby right out of, you know, comes right out of the mother's womb and you put it in the cockpit of an airplane and it could fly. 
Yeah. Um, that's basically what's going on in a fly's brain. That that the you know genetic um, information, which is wiring the brain, is good enough and precise enough that it can encode um, this you know remarkably in uh, a sophisticated behavior. Yeah, and do so in a in a you know very sort of flawless and robust way. Right. Yeah. The, the smaller the lifespan of the animal, um, the, the, the more sophisticated in some sense the operating system they come with. Right. Uh, they, as you say, they don't have the luxury of of learning. So they have to come packed with set of apps right from the beginning uh, so that they don't have to spend much time uh, putting that out, putting those apps on. Yeah, I'd say that that's that's right. That's right. I mean, I think that there's um, uh, life lifespan explains a fair bit of it. Um, um, I mean, there's some other things. Uh, you know, if you're not being taken care of by anybody, you know, if you're not, if you don't have a mother or father, um, you know, you're somebody's lunch the moment you're born, and so there's a huge selective pressure for flies to be able to function. I mean, even, even insects that live a long time, I mean, there are insects that live years, um, and yet, you know, still they have this, you know, capability of being able to fly, you know, the, the first time they have wings. Yeah, yeah. And, and flying is, uh, is one thing. Uh, the other interesting thing is obviously um, landing and take off. I have to say, I used to be an engineer a long time ago, Michael. And every time I see a 747 take off, I just can't, uh, take, you know, just can't peel my eyes off it. <laughs> it just it seems so uh, incredible that we made something like that. Um, but uh, the, the landing and takeoff here, in the case of the flies, it's uh, it's an equally incredible thing, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's it, it certainly is extraordinary. I mean, it has its um, it's very different than landing and takeoff of a plane. Um, it takes it's you know obviously a lot faster, um, yeah. and flies are able to um, you know reach their their cruising speed you know almost instantly. Um, but some of the the real exotic stuff really has to do with the 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 engines. Um, what is powering flight? Um, because one of the one of the underappreciated secrets of insect flight is not so much that their their aerodynamics is so particularly exotic, um, but it has to do with their muscles. It has to do with the muscles that are capable of flapping the wings in some insects as fast as a thousand times a second. Um, now the flies I work with fly at, at about 220 times a second, but still that's remarkably fast. Um, and it, it really exceeds the, the speed at which normal muscles, like those in our you know, fingers and extremities are able to oscillate. So there's been enormous amount of a very exotic um, cell biology that has evolved within insects, including flies, um, that have created these muscles that are powerful enough to, 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 to um, generate flight, sustain flight, um, but also can contract and relax yeah. at these 
these astonishing rates? Yeah, th those signals, uh, are, they, are they electric, Michael, or, or there are chemicals involved in it too? Uh, well, that. actually, it's, it's sort of neither is this kind of the answer. The, the secret to, to this is that insects have evolved a set of muscles um, that they use to, to, to really power the wings moving back and forth that don't require um, a, a moment by moment um, input from the animal's brain. Yeah. Um, and instead, they're uh, mechanically um, activated so that when one muscle contracts, it stretches, well, say when the downstroke muscle contracts, it, it stretches the upstroke muscle. And it's that mechanical stretch that molecularly causes the muscle to contract. And so the cycles of relaxation, contraction, relaxation, contraction, is all determined by mechanical oscillation. Um, basically, the nervous system is not, and the, and the cell physiology, normal cell physiology that muscles use is not fast enough to, um, to operate muscles at these speeds. So these muscles have evolved this sort of you know, very exotic mechanism that you know, it's te technically we call it a stretch activation yeah. Um, that enables flight. And it's really, I mean, I would argue it's really the, 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 the evolution of this stretch activated muscle that has made the, um, the extraordinary radiation of, of insects in terms of species diversity possible. They, they must be quite efficient, right? Uh, to go 10 kilometers without refueling uh, at that at that size, so what, what sort of the energy consumption for them? There, Let me, yeah, let me let me correct um, a, a general misconception. Yeah, it's it's often written that insects are usually in the context of honeybees because everybody loves honeybees. Um, that insects are like very efficient um, flyers. Uh, nothing could be further from the truth. They're terribly <laughs> inefficient. I mean, yeah. compared to a, a helicopter, which, are, which are not particularly efficient compared to airplanes, but even compared to a helicopter, insects are horribly inefficient. Um, and, it, you know, so you take, um, you know, animals like, like, like honeybees that are, you know, these, you know, incredible transports for taking nectar and pollen back from the hive to the flowers and, and, and so forth. I mean, they're consuming an enormous amount of energy. They're basically gas guzzlers. Yeah. It's just that the gas happens to be nectar, um, you know, which is this you know, very rich carbohydrate source. Um, yeah. the, the same is true of hummingbirds, by the way. Um, right. you know, hummingbirds are usually, everybody thinks of hummingbirds as being these you know, elegant, efficient animals that, you know, sip nectar, they're, they're gas guzzlers. And, and really, they're, what they really are after, especially the females, are insects. They, they, could, they could kind of care less about the, the nectar, except that it's what they, they need to put in the gas tank. Um, they need the insects, of course, because without a protein source, um, the females couldn't make any, any eggs. 
and and the the protein is all coming from the the insects that they're eating. Right. Mm -hmm. And so the muscle moving back and forth, you say it's not a very efficient mechanism to fly, but these things appear to fly quite long distances, though, right? Yeah, they can fly long distances, and you know this is really uh, an interesting point because there's a lot of um, there's a fair number of laboratories around the world that are trying to make robotic insects uh, of the same scale as real insects, hmm. the size of honeybees, um, and you know some of these are like friends and colleagues of mine. Um, but one of the and and they've they've succeeded in making really impressive um, little wings that can oscillate back and forth and replicate the, the back and forth motion that real insect wings generate. Yeah. But at the moment, the big failure is they're still currently powered by wires that are, that are hanging down from, from batteries you know, that are powering them. <laughs> Um, yeah. the, the thing that we as engineers haven't succeeded at doing is creating, you know, an engine at that scale that can burn fuel that is as, you know, energy um, um, rich as, you know, nectar or, or, or you know, sugars and fats um, that, that insects use. So it's, 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 it's you know, there's nothing... There's no sophisticated, you know, rocket science mathematics that comes out of this. It's just that, that um, you know, sugar has a lot of energy um, and a full-fed fruit fly um, has enough energy to be able to flap its wings for, you know, about up to three hours. Yeah. And in three hours, it, it can cover 15 kilometers. Right. So, so what do we know about the evolutionary aspects of this, Michael. Did this um, evolve sort of separately from other flying mechanisms? I'm talking about insects specifically. Yeah, um, we know a lot. We know, uh, I mean, there's some things we know in great detail, and then there's some like very embarrassing mysteries. <laughs> so what we, what we know is that flight, active flight, evolved in animals exactly four times once in pterosaurs, once in birds, once in bats, and once in insects. So the, the, the fossil evidence and the molecular evidence would suggest very strongly that, that, that insects are monophyletic, so that they, you know, the, the, the evolution of flight happened only once. And the way it happened in insects is unique among all flying animals because Birds, bats, and pterosaurs all got their wings through transformation of their arms. They fly with their with modified arms. What happened in insects is really um, almost fantasy-like. I mean, you have to imagine animals like Pegasus, like like winged horses, because when wings evolved in insects in the late Silurian or Devonian period some 400 million years ago, um, you know, insects were these or little scurrying six-legged creatures. Um, when they evolved the wing, they didn't get, they didn't get rid of any of their legs. Um, and so they maintained their capacity and 
um, quite efficient um, terrestrial walking um, system. They just slapped a pair of wings on top. So they're a little bit like those, you know, fantasiful um, flying cars that, you know, engineers every once in a while try to <laughs> try, try to make. Yeah. Um, uh, so, so that's the, the story we know very well. The, the big mystery then is where did the wings come from? If, if the wings aren't legs, as they are in birds, bats, and pterosaurs, then they must be like a completely novel structure. And a, a lot of research has gone into trying to figure out where the wings came from developmentally and evolutionarily. Are there insects-like uh, animals in the water? Are there insect-like animals in the water? Um, well, sort of depends on, on the way you, you, you answer that question. Um, there are a fair number of um, biologists, I mean, this isn't without controversy, but one of the most prominent um, uh, practitioners of, of nervous system evolution, um, a fellow named Nicholas Straussfeld, um, has for years been arguing that, that insects evolved from crustaceans. So if you're familiar with, you know, crabs and shrimps and, you know, things that we'd like to, to eat, um, you know, he believes and makes some very strong arguments based on the similarity of the nervous system of um, crustaceans and, and insects, that, 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 that insects are closely aligned to um, to crustaceans. So they're basically sort of crustaceans, you know, shrimp-like animals that crawled onto land um, and, and began, began to fly <laughs> in sort of a very rough overview. Um, now there are alternate theories, but um, insects do share, you know, remarkable affinities with, you know, other arthropods, including crustaceans. Yeah. I mean, the, the reason I asked was almost everything that we know on the land uh, came from the water. And I was wondering if there is any analogous things for insects. But uh, we use the term insects sort of lightly, right? I mean, it's, it's a big, big um, variety of things, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's, 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 it's the most, you know, species-rich radiation of, of organisms in the history of the planet. We, we don't really know how many species there are because we, we don't have the resources to, to count them all. Um, but it's, you know, the number usually ranges from, you know, three to 30 million different species of insects. Um, and um, just flies alone, which are my favorite group of insects, um, the number that's usually given is 100,000 species, but almost everybody agrees that that is a vast underestimate because um, just among people who study insects, um, there's not nearly as many people who study flies as there are people who study butterflies. I think you know, <laughs> butterflies are just very popular and they're very pretty. Um, so there's just many, many, many undescribed species of flies out there because we're sort of losing our, our um, taxonomic experts. 
Um, yeah, and this is this is worth commenting on a little bit because you know biology has really shifted over the last fifty years or more with the rise of molecular biology and fields of biology that include you know classic taxonomy, just being able to describe and recognize different species and evolution. Um, those specialties have you know have really diminished in numbers compared to to areas of biology associated with molecular biology. Um, and of course, it's all very exciting what's you know, going on with you know, gene editing techniques and, and imaging. And so this is not to say that um, you know, modern biology is not very, very, very exciting, but we've also lost an enormous amount of expertise. Yeah. And this is right at a time when you know, the world is recognizing that we are losing insects we're in the middle of, of a, a, a insect apoc apocalypse, as it's called, where, where we've lost somewhere between, again, the estimates vary, but around you know, 40 to as high as 75% of the you know, biomass of, of, of insects worldwide. Is it um, attributable to environmental degradation or something else? Like like all problems um, of this nature, it it's 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 complicated. Um, so uh, certainly one um, one likely source is the is the use of pesticides. So in temperate places where you know humans tend to, to live, yeah. um, the, the use of neonicotinoids in particular. Which are really designed to kill insects are are are, are doing so, but they're they're doing so in, in a pretty indiscriminate manner. So that's certainly one problem. Um, another problem is just environmental degradation. You know, we're losing habitat. Um, there is some evidence that in the in, in certain parts of the world, uh, you know, global global warming is leading to to um, to a loss of insects. So it's they're really getting hammered from a number of different directions. Yeah. I want to touch on the other experiments in the paper, Michael. So one of them is this looking at this dispersion capabilities, right? Um, could you talk a bit about that, um, the experiment you ran around that? Yeah, so um, that's a good question because it leads to some of the research that is very current in the laboratory and also within the field of, of insect sort of neuroscience right now. Yeah. Uh, I mean, imagine you're an insect and you're, you're released in the middle of nowhere, right? Yeah. Um, how, would you, how would you fly? Where would you go, right? How would you maintain a straight course? Um, this experiment has been done on humans. If you take a human and you release them in a field and you, um, you know, what they do is they, they look around and they see a mountain, they see the sun, they use the sun as a landmark and they can walk in a straight line. Yeah. If you put a burlap sack over their head, they walk in circles. And, and, and they, they don't know they're walking in circles. Like if, they, if, if you take the sack off their head and say, you know, were you walking in a straight line? They'll swear they were walking in a straight line, but they're, they, they weren't. And it's very much the same with insects. And insects, it turns out, 
have a very sophisticated navigational system in which they can use the position of the sun. Yeah. And they can also use the pattern of, of, of polarized light in the sky. So um, um, the polarization of light is something that happens to it as it comes through the atmosphere. And, you know, it's why the sky looks a little bit different to us if we're wearing polarized sunglasses versus regular sunglasses. Um, but without something like sunglasses um, specialized in this way, humans can't detect polarized light, but, but insects can very well. And if you can read the pattern of polarization in the sky, it's, it's like a map. It's like you can, that you can use as a compass. So using either this pattern of polarized light or the sun, the insects effectively have a, have a, have, have a compass. Um, and there's a region of their brain, a, a very um, now sort of sexy region of their brain that everybody's um, clamoring to study called the central complex, yeah. which is specialized in using this compass information for many, many, many tasks including being able to navigate. So it's the part of the compass, uh, part of the brain that monarch butterflies use when they're you know, going back and forth between you know, Mexico and, and Canada. Um, it's the part of the brain that locusts use when they're you know, um, migrating from one part of Africa to another. And it's a part of the brain that, that flies use so that they can maintain a stable heading when they're dispersing. Yeah, so you have another paper um, related to that. Sun navigation requires compass neurons in Drosophila. Um, and, and so this is what you mean by uh, using some parts of the brain. But I would imagine in the case of flies, the, the number of neurons in there are pretty limited, right? Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a matter of perspective. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, the number that is thrown around these days as we're getting better um, evidence from electron microscopy is around 140,000 neurons. Hmm. Um, so, you know, compared to a human, yes, that's not a, a large number of cells, um, but, but still you can do some damage with 140,000 neurons. Um, <laughs> Especially, you know, because I believe that, that, that insects use each neuron in a sophisticated way. So it's not as if, you know, a neuron is like a transistor. Each neuron is like a transistor. I mean, each neuron is like its own sophisticated computer. Yeah. So yeah. when you think about a, 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 an animal having, um, you know, 140,000 neurons, you know, the better image is to think of it as having 140,000 little tiny microcomputers all hooked up together. Um, because, because some of the computations that an individual neuron can do are rather sophisticated. Right. Uh, so, so I, I, was just, uh, I was just wondering, Michael, so if, so the, the polarized light um, their ability to understand it, use it like a map for navigation, um, appears to be quite an interesting thing um, humans could could utilize, perhaps in, you know, I'm thinking about Mars rovers and things like that. 
um has there been any um any sort of <laughs> attempts at using this well and... that's a really good question so i mean the problem gill is that humans evolved gps so we we kind of made figured out a way of cheating right by putting up a bunch of satellites you know around orbit that are giving us information at a very high level of resolution as to exactly where we are and how we're oriented. So, you know, the interest with, with, with availability of GPS, of, of, of using the sorts of navigational capacities of insects, um, you know, isn't of, of great interest as it, as it used to be, but it's a very interesting question. So there's a story um, that uh, that the Vikings yeah. used to um, have stones that they would um, carry with them when they were on their ocean voyages. And the stones were sort of like clear glass that, that had, uh, that were basically polarization filters. <laughs> and so there is this hypothesis that they would use the pattern of polarization in the sky as a compass, because the pattern of polarization in the sky is linked to the position of the sun. Yeah. Um, but there's lots of cases, you know, when when the weather is cloudy, the sun is obscured. But the idea is, if if you just have a a, a patch of blue sky is all you can see, if you can figure out how the light is polarized within that patch of sky, then you can know which direction you're heading. So. so so, so anyway, so it, it may have been, I mean, you know, I, I'm sure there's some debate as to whether the Vikings really used these stones for this purpose, but there at least the possibility exists that, um, you know, ancient human mariners did use exactly the same strategy that, 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 that insects, insects use. So, so this <laughs> that insects cannot navigate at night or could they use moonlight or something? Very good question. So, you know, it turns out that the moon, moonlight also gets polarized by the atmosphere. Yeah. And there are insects whose eyes are sensitive enough to detect the pattern of polarization um, in moonlight. Now, again, if the moon is visible, the moon is a much better navigational clue than the pattern of polarization it creates. But on cloudy nights, um, it's been shown that, that some insects can actually use the pattern of polarization of moonlight. And it, 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 it reminds me to, to make a, what's a really important point, and you all started this discussion with the title of that paper, Drosophila um, Death Valley and the Devonian Toolkit. And the, the, that last term, the Devonian Toolkit, um, is, is, is in the title of the paper because I think there's growing evidence, very, very good evidence that a lot of these, these mechanisms we're, we're talking about using the pattern of polarization in the sky, um, using this region of the brain called the central complex. These are behavioral modules that evolved a very, very long time ago at the very <clears throat> origins of insect flight you know, 400 million years ago. And 
we're, with the advent of sort of modern anatomical methods, we're really seeing that insect brains, even though the, the, the behaviors of the adult insects and the appearance of the adult insects take a monarch and take a fruit fly and take a dung beetle, um, for example, you know, are, are different. The, the kind of core processor that they're using is very, 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 very similar. And, and that's the idea of the Devonian toolkit, that these, these, these algorithms, these behavioral modules are things that e e emerged on the planet a long time ago. And, and what we see in, in, in extant um, animals, so-called crown taxa, are relatively subtle modifications of those very, very ancient um, behavioral modules. Yeah. So do we have any evidence, Michael, that uh, flies are getting um, more robust? They're able to fly um, uh, further for distances or anything like that? Uh, I mean, it's, it's a short period of time, but is there any evidence from, uh, from, from history that tells us that things are changing in any way? Um, well, there's, there, that's a, a whole area of, of biology, you know, obviously evolutionary biology, yeah. um, that tracks, you know, the, um, changes in the, you know, genes and the appearance of insects, um, through time. And of course, probably one of the most famous examples, textbook examples, has to do with a, a, a moth um, from, in, in, um, from England yeah. that, um, you know, used to be brightly colored. Um, and then with the Industrial Revolution, as soot started to cover all of the, the trees, the trees got darker and darker and darker and darker. And over, um, you know, a hundred years or less, the moth started to get darker and darker and darker and darker in order to match the background. Yeah. So yeah. that's Quick a classic. Thing. Yeah, that's a classic case of an insect, you know, responding a population of insects responding evolutionarily to a change in the world that you know humans are responsible for. Yeah, this uh, paper that we talked about, sun navigation requires compass neurons. Um, I think it is fairly clearly shown that um, they are using the sun, right, for the navigation. Yeah. You say here, when these cells are silenced, uh, flies no longer adopt and maintain arbitrary headings, but instead exhibit uh, photo taxis. <laughs> uh, so, so we know we have fairly clear evidence that's the case, right? Well, that was, I mean, that was what we found in our paper, that if you, re, if, you, if you sort of break the compass, it's not that the flies fly all, um, you know, cattywampus. It's, it's they revert on a much, much simpler behavior, which is just flying towards the light. And, you know, this is a, a, a behavior called phototaxis that even the simplest organisms, even organisms with, you know, uh, hundreds of neurons in their brains instead of thousands of neurons in their brains are capable of a behavior in which they go towards a light or go away from a light. But the ability to maintain a constant orientation relative to 
a landmark, which is what you need you know, to be able to navigate it. Navigation isn't very helpful if all you can do is fly towards the sun, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's only helpful if you can fly at some sort of chosen arbitrary heading um, re relative to, to the, the, the sun. I mean, what I, what I will say, I mean, just getting away from the sun navigation for a moment, I mean, to ask about um, is there evidence that flies are, you know, evolving? Um, you know, the flies that I happen to work on, Drosophila melanogaster, which is sort of the, you know, famous research fly that there's, you know, depending upon how you count, you know, five Nobel Prizes that have gone to studying these animals. This is why we, you know, we use the word chromosome and we understand that genes are arranged on chromosomes. They've been really the model for understanding genetics mm -hmm. since the work of Thomas Hunt Morgan over a hundred years ago. Well, you know, these, these animals have, you know, changed. They're different. They're, they're effectively a different species because of their interactions with humans. They used to be a fly. They're from Africa. Um, they lived on the, the yeast that was grown in a, a rotting fruit um, that was common in sub-Saharan Africa. But when humans arrived on the scene and started growing um, fruit and grains in order to make um, alcoholic beverages, yeah. Um, yeah. these animals, you know, evolved to exploit this like much, much more ready resource of food. Um, and so we've, you know, we're sort of locked in kind of a co-evolutionary loop with fruit flies <laughs> because we, um, for example, um, one trait we share with fruit flies is extremely high alcohol tolerance. Um, <laughs> because you know, humans are unique in mammals for evolving you know, the ability to consume um, um, alcohol without you know, it, it being toxic at, you know, at the kind of levels that we enjoy in our beverages. It's the same for flies. Flies can, can, can tolerate much, 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 much higher levels of alcohol than can um, most other insects. And, and sugar. So sugar might be another thing that we, we, we have in common. Yeah, well, we had, I think, I think we, yeah, well, unfortunately, lots, lots of, uh, lots of animals of, uh, um, I mean, you sort of can't beat sugar as a, as a carbohydrate source, so. It's, yeah. um, we'll take a, we'll take a quick break, Michael. When we come back, we'll talk about your other paper on the aerodynamics and control of flight. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com. So Michael, uh, we are back. Uh, we are talking about insects, flies, how they fly, uh, the, the the sort of the complexity of their mechanics of flight. 
uh, as well as how um, how you know dispersed they could be, um, and and how they navigate um, to to get to that dispersion. You have another paper uh, entitled "The Aerodynamics and Control of Free Flight Maneuvers in Drosophila." Uh, you say a firm understanding of how fruit flies hover has emerged over the past two decades, and recent work has focused on the aerodynamic, biomechanical, and neurobiological mechanisms that enable them to maneuver and resist perturbations. Um, this is a fascinating thing, Michael. You know, you, you you mentioned they are sort of creating a vortex uh, in front of them uh, by by you know very rapidly moving their um their wings and uh that vortex is sort of sucking them in in the forward flight uh but there is more to it right um movement is one thing but you have to be able to control that movement uh because you also have predators uh in the neighborhood so you have to be able to take turns quite fast also i would imagine yeah that's that's right so there's uh Many researchers, myself included, for many years, you know, for the better part of half a century, um, you know, had our no nose to the grindstone to understand, you know, this basic problem of how an insect generates enough lift to stay in the air. And that led to the, you know, the discovery of this leading edge vortex and this basic pattern of, of um, flapping motion um, that could explain, you know, why the fly is in the air and not crashing into the ground or why any insect. But, you know, once you understand that, that's just sort of the tip of the iceberg because insects do such exotic things once they're in the air. Flies in particular are capable of you know, very exotic chasing behavior and um, um, predator avoidance behavior. Um, and so I'd say... Um, the, the interest in the field sort of switched to understanding um, how flies are able to, you know, manipulate these aerodynamic forces such that they can execute these maneuvers. And, and, and that's been and still is a very active, you know, part of the research within, within the laboratory. And one of the things that makes it so both interesting and difficult is that just the way the physics work, yeah. it, it turns out that if an insect moves its wing just a little bit differently, you know, on the left side of the body versus the right side of the body, or in one stroke relative to the next stroke, that has enormous consequences for the forces that are created. So it's it's not the case like your image of an insect that that performs this super rapid maneuver. The image should not be that it like stops flapping one wing, right, and yeah. starts making these you know really large changes in the uh, way it flaps the other wing. That's not at all what's going on. It's just the subtlest of alterations of. Mm -hmm what one wing is doing relative to what another wing is doing is enough to produce very, very, very large changes in, in forces and moments that the animal can use to execute 
you know, complete changes in direction, you know, change its, its course by 180 degrees in less than a human eye blink. Um, and, and one of the challenges for us then is to understand how, how is an animal that has so few muscles, so few muscles controlling its wings, relatively few neurons in its brain, how can it control its wings so precisely to, to, um, to, to execute the tiniest of, of changes in wing motion that it, that it needs to do in order to both fly straight and maneuver? And so that's probably the most sort of active area of research right now in the laboratory is, is really understanding how the, how, how the brain can control uh, its, the, the, the wing motion in such a subtle way. It has the, the most sensitive little knobs that it, has to, that it has to regulate in order to fly. Yeah, this chasing behavior and the predator avoidance behavior you talked about, these are conscious decisions. And so, so going back to our discussion from before, they come, they come with, out of the box, a very sophisticated operating system um, that is able to do a lot of things. Uh, but, but these types of behaviors are conscious decisions. And so, so interplay between that conscious decisions and that instinctual capabilities to change uh, things. That, that, that is, I would imagine, is a rich area to study. Yeah, I mean, I would be a little careful if I say they were c conscious decisions. I, I certainly agree that they're decisions. Yeah. Um, th there's a lot of things that an animal will do when it detects a predator nearby. Um, for example, the animal might freeze. It might halt its, its motion. Um, mm -hmm. It might raise its wings, getting ready to take off and do an evasive maneuver, but not pull the trigger yet. Yeah. Um, it might um, get its legs ready to, to push off without taking further action, or it might execute a, you know, a rapid takeoff. So the, the, the animal does have, have options, and in different circumstances, it chooses different decisions. So I think decision-making is certainly, um, you know, appropriate uh, rhetoric. And, you know, one of my former students, a woman named Gwyneth Card, has um, really spent most of her career studying um, the neural circuitry underlying all these various decisions. But I, I still think that's a little bit, you know, one doesn't necessarily have to in in invoke consciousness. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Um, because it could all still be like you could build a very, very, very clever robot right. that made such decisions. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I, I don't know much about this, Michael, but uh, I would think it's more like templates. So just like we, you know, uh, people might be building uh, robots that uh, they come with a set of templates and, you know, you can pick template five in a in a situation and that template has all the sort of the instructions uh encoded in it so once you once you pick that template then everything else sort of falls in place maybe something along those lines 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's a that's a, a reasonably good, you know, heuristic model as to like what's going on in the fly's brain. And you know, the the thing that's very exciting right now because of advances in in the genetic tools that are available, it's you know, it's possible to actually kind of get an get an answer to understanding what those templates are. So I'd say for the past, you know, 20 years, we've mostly been studying, you know, what you're calling, I think, appropriately templates. Yeah. Um, you know, using, using behavioral methods, we can use high-speed video cameras, we can perform behavioral psychophysics to, to quantify um, and characterize, you know, all of the various possible actions that flies can take. What's becoming possible now, or algorithms, sometimes people, you know, use the term algorithms to describe these, but I think it's similar to your, you know, use of template. Yeah. Now, because of the fancy genetic techniques, it's, it's getting possible to look and see how the brain, how individual neurons, how, and, and um, circuits of neurons are actually implementing those algorithms. And, you know, that's what's drawing a lot of, you know, interest into the field right now. Um, because one can, you know, go from, you know, there's just like there's many ways you could, you could code, you know, in a computer, yeah. sort of basically the same algorithm. There's lots and lots of different ways that the brain might be solving these problems. Um, but now we have the tools available that, that make it possible to, to really understand how the brain is implementing these, um, you know, these different um, behaviors. Can we, um, can we image their brains in flight? Do we have any technology to do that? Yes, we can. I mean, we can't image from the brains of a freely flying animal but yeah. we can image from the brain of a fly that's flying in a little flight simulator. So we do this quite routinely in the laboratory where we, we, we kind of connect, attach the fly's head to a little sort of stage that is hooked up to a special mic microscope. Um, and in that fly, certain neurons are expressing proteins um, that will change their fluorescent properties when they're active. So while the fly is flying and playing a little video game that, you know, or, or being subjected to some sort of sensory stimulus, you can, you can image the activity of, um, from specific neurons within the fly's brain. And you can do the opposite. You can also use techniques called using agents called um, um, optogenetic proteins. Yeah. So yeah. these are proteins that you can express in a cell so that when you shine a light on that cell, the cell becomes active. So you can effectively remotely control neurons within the brain and then ask if the fly changes its behavior in response to those manipulations. Um, yeah. You can use genetic tools to silence neurons so that they, they can't they're, they, they aren't active. So you can turn on, turn off, and image specific neurons within, within the brain 
Um, so that combination of techniques is really, you know, leading to a, um, you know, kind of a revolution in our ability to understand how these how these tiny brains work. The great model at hundred thousand uh, hundred thousand neurons, um, you know, technology might be getting closer to that level of sophistication in silicon, and if 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 we have you know, sort of a sufficient understanding of how how things are firing in there, there might be uh, quite interesting applications. Yes, I, I I think it's true, and the you know the the other the final leg of the table that I, I didn't describe is the fact that a fly's brain is small enough that it is possible to to. Take a make a a single serial block for electron microscopy, and um, using the you know the most sophisticated machine learning algorithms, there are groups around the world that are you know coming up with a complete connectome, so uh, you know the wiring diagram of the entire fly brain, so that you can tell where every you know cell that contacts or is contacted by every other cell. And in concert with this growing knowledge, there's a, a lot of interest in using computational methods to you know, basically model how these networks of neurons are, are operating to, to, to perform the tasks that, that they're performing. So I think that, um, you know, if there is if there is a time when we're going to be able to, you know, learn something, you know, useful about how flies or other, um, you know, similarly organized creatures um, perform computations using these, you know, very dense microbrains, you know, it's going to be over the next five or ten years. Like the 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 the, the technology is becoming available now. So, um, you know, it's pretty, it's a pretty exciting time. What's your instinct, Michael? Uh, you know, there's obviously differing opinions around this. Um, you know, the, the computer science robotics um, areas are on a path of throwing more silicon at the problem, uh, create bigger and bigger deep learning neural networks to solve uh, problems that they see. Um, but there is also uh, a, a view that we are on a wrong path. Uh, the brain, b the brain of an animal, doesn't work like that at all. It's not a deep learning neural network. Uh, it is something completely different. Do you have a do you do you have a view on this? Yeah, I, I do. <laughs> I have a I have a pretty strong view. I mean, at least for at least for the, the, you know, nervous systems of insects, but I suspect for the nervous systems of, you know, even larger organisms like mice, you know, monkeys, and possibly even humans, I, I do not think that, you know, the deep neural network model is going to end up being, you know, particularly informative um, in yeah. understanding how insect brains work. I, th I, th I think the insect brains are making the computations in a very, very different way. Now that, no, uh, don't get me wrong. I'm not by any means trashing machine learning. <laughs> we, you know, we use it in the laboratory yeah. routinely yeah. As, a, as a powerful tool. So 
I, I see it as a transformative, you know, engineering um, application, but I, I don't think it, you know, my opinion is that it will end up not being a very good model for how the, the brains and, and, you know, the natural world actually function. Yeah, I tend to agree with you, Michael. You know, one, um, one symptom of this is that uh, the brain doesn't require tons and tons of data to, to get to reasonable decisions. Uh, it's able to do it very, very quickly with, uh, with very little data. Yes. Uh, and, and the amount of the bits of information that is communicated between the neurons, it's, it's a few bits. It's not, you know, uh, high bandwidth, uh, tons of data going back and forth either. So I think from a design perspective, I think we, we, are, we are still missing how the brain is really constructed. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I mentioned this before, this idea that a fly undergoes metamorphosis comes out of its little pupil case and can, you know, instantly fly. I, 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 I tell this to people when I'm giving lectures and, and often engineers in the audience, they just, they, they just patently won't believe me. <laughs> they, they just say that can't be that, that you know, you're missing something like that. It must be that the fly you know, learns to fly, that there's a training set somehow, <laughs> you know, that the, maybe the fly is practicing while it's still in the pupil case or something. I mean, it's just, but I, but I agree with you that, that, you know, the, for, for this reason that I, I just, you know, the animals don't have the, as I, I said, the same rhetoric before, the animals just don't have the luxury. Yeah you know, to, to, to learn how to do all this stuff. It, it, it has to be hardwired. Um, it has to be baked into the, into the nervous system from the get-go. Yeah, I want to touch on one, one other thing, Michael. So the, the, the leading edge vortex that you talked about, um, sort of the fluid mechanics around that, that uh, propels the fly. Um, we don't have any human uh, created mechanism like that, right, today? Not, not really. Um, there, there is a phenomenology that um, you find on certain um, types of uh, of windmills um, where there is an attached vortex. So, to get a leading edge vortex, you need to have something that 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 rotates, that kind of rotates about a center, um, for sort of a technical reason. But the it really boils down to this, Gil. If if you know if you were if you wanted to build something that flew like an insect, right? Um, you know what you would do is you would have a have have a wing that 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 operated at a at a much 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 lower angle of attack and spin it very 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 fast hmm. and the insect wings at low angles of attack are much more efficient. So, you know, the basic efficiency of any wing is, is most simply summarized by something called the lift to drag ratio, the amount of lift it creates per unit drag it creates. And insect wings, the way insects use them, are terribly inefficient. 
Um, it's just that the insects, because of the limitations of muscles, the insects can't flap their wing fast enough to generate enough force at a low angle of attack. And so as a compromise, they use these very high angles of attack that generate these very high lift coefficients, but they also generate enormous drag and they pay for that drag dearly. So from an engineering perspective, you would, you, you'd, you'd be an idiot <laughs> to like, to, yeah. to, to try to, you know, build a quad rotor, you know, using a leading edge vortex because it would be much more efficient to just use a low angle of attack wing and spin, spin the wing faster. Is there a, is there a trade-off, Michael, between, uh, I don't know anything about this, but is there a trade-off between uh, that efficiency in proportion to maneuverability in any way? I'm just wondering why nature uh, ended up with this design for flies. Yeah, a lot of people speculate a lot on that. I mean, one thing to remember, though, is that nature nature abhors wheels there's only one true wheel in nature and it's fat and it's in the tail of a bacterium um it, it, you know you can't sort of have like an axle and and bearings and something that spins continuously it, it's not compatible with circulatory systems and um you know digestive systems and you know all the connections so an insect is sort of stuck with a wing that 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 can only flap for you know 100 or 180 degrees before it has to fl to flip over and flap in the opposite direction it's just yeah. physically impossible to make something that can spin continuously right. that said yeah it, it's also true what i said before that you know when you have when you have two wings and those two wings are, instead of one wing that's spinning around like a helicopter, when you have two wings and those two wings can, can, can move in subtly different ways, hmm. that, that gives you enormous aerodynamic purchase on maneuverability. Yeah. In a way that a you know a conventional helicopter does doesn't have, right? Do do you see um, engineering designs emanating from uh, a closer understanding of uh, the, the 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 flight here? I think that the the problem is in fabrication. I mean the 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 the, the problem that the people like Rob Wood at Harvard and others who've tried to make um, flying devices the size of insects is you know, making that, that microstructure that can, that can move the wing in this like very precise way. Hmm. And you know, this is at a size domain, a scale where you know, gears, bearings, belts, you know, stepper motors, like, those things don't work. They're too, yeah, they're yeah. too big. They're too um, susceptible to friction. Um, everything has to be done with flexure. Everything has to be done with effectively, like, you know, molecular origami. Mm -hmm. And I, I'd say that we as engineers 
just don't have the fabrication capabilities um, to be able to make structures so sophisticated at that size range. I mean, you know, a lot of a lot of a lot of people are trying to make inroads in this direction, but you know, throughout human history, humans do big really well. Like we we got <laughs> pyramids down, right? We got yeah. the Eiffel Tower. I mean, beautiful, right? Where we struggle is with small, right? And and I and I think that even though there's been some advances in that domain, we we still struggle with small. Yeah, and you know the other. Um, other innovation that needs to go in tandem here is material sciences, right? So we might still be missing, you know, sort of um, big material science changes. I mean, if you find materials that have yes. different properties than we currently have, yes. that potentially change the engineering fabrication equation. Oh, oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And, and, but, the, you know, they're, they're linked because, you know, if you really get into, and I, boy, I, I mean, I could give five podcasts just on the insect wing hinge itself. I mean, it is the, I think it's the most sophisticated mechanical structure in the, in, you know, the animal kingdom. But, you know, when you get into it, it's, it, it, it not only has this complicated morphology, but the material properties vary you know, at this almost molecular scale. So, you know, it's not like you take a, a, a substance and you sort of fold it into something. You take the substance that's made of many substances and, and with all different types of elastic properties and stiffnesses and viscosities and strengths and toughness. And you, and, and, and you, you know, you, you make a wing hinge out of that. Um, and, and, and how to sort of build you know, we struggle just to make a, a cool new material, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> um, how do we make like a, a something, I mean, even call, calling it a composite doesn't really you know, give it justice. Yeah, yeah, it, it is uh, composites, uh, but it is a combination of material science and engineering design. And uh, it, it, is, it sounds sort of iterative, uh, Michael. So nature spent 400 million, I don't know, uh, <laughs> I don't know how long uh, to try to get to this design. Um, so it's not going to be easy, that's for sure. No. <laughs> so um, I know that you are still doing a lot of work in this area. So if you look forward five years, Michael, where do you see we would make um, you know more discoveries and perhaps even some bridging to practical applications from here. Well, I think I think it really is going to be, you know, the most of the needle is going to move in the domain of neuroscience, you know, because of the emergence of these these connectomes. Um, where we know the, the full circuit diagram of the, of the nervous system, um, that's, that's sort of a real game changer. I don't, I don't think our knowledge of the, you know, the, the aerodynamics per se is going to change that much. I, I think these, these problems with um, understanding, you know, the microstructure of the, of the, you know, wing hinge is, it's just it's a very hard problem, but where I where I do think we're going to make a lot of progress is understanding how the how the how 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 the brain works, 
and how information is processed as the animal flies. Right. And um, so in some sense, it is coming together. So there's a whole area of using nature's designs to robotics, right? So that, that appears to be really taking off now. Um, yes, that's it. it yes, yes. Um, but, but I mean, it's, would you say it, we are behind in the, in sort of the, the neuro, uh, biological mechanisms, understanding how the brain actually does it or. or I, I still, I, I'll, I'll stick to what I said before, Gil. I, I really think that a lot of it has to do with like fabrication. Like, you know, we can, we can build a decent robo tuna. <laughs> right. Yeah. We can build a decent robo dog and goat. Right. Yeah. But but, you know, these are things where conventional engineering um, tools from f from rack and pinions to, uh, you know, encoders and mm -hmm. servo motors and pulleys and belts and so all that stuff works. But. We, we, you know, we just don't do small well, right? I mean, so, yeah. you know, the challenge of making, you know, a robo tuna or, or the, the, you know, the very engaging stuff that, you know, Boston Dynamics builds, <laughs> but to do that at the scale of an insect, I think is a, it's, it's an order of magnitude, you know, more challenging task. Yeah, I almost get different discipline, Michael. Yeah, you know, it's, it's not engineering as we, as we think of engineering. It's something slightly different. Um, on the other hand, since it's an engineering-like problem, it is ultimately a solvable problem, not like a biological problem that we may never get an answer for, right? The engineering problems should be solvable over time. Yeah, I, I think so. I, I mean, one one hopes. <laughs> this has been uh, this has been great, Michael. Thanks so much for spending time with me. Well, thank you. It was been uh, it's been an enjoyable conversation. Thanks so much. Okay. Bye bye. This is a scientific sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.